Hello and welcome to the Paranormalist Podcast. As always, I am your host, Kenny Dodson, and I am here, oh, aka the Firemeister. Oh, God. Right, Patty? about that. Yes, Kenny. Yes. If, uh... <laughs> I almost said yes, dear. I'm getting used to, like, agreeing with you to uh, keep things you moving. Can, you can call me dear. That's fine. But Firemeister <laughs> is better. Yes, Firemeister. And I am here with... Uh, do you want to give yourself a nickname for tonight? Go ahead. I'm, I'll just be the paranormalist, the ghost lady of PA. That's ghost what lady of Pennsylvania. I've That's always who I'm been here the with. ghost lady of PA. Yeah. Well, we so the Firemeister thing, if you become a patron, you can see what that's all about. Let's just say I like burning things. Not that that's creepy. Not, yeah, not in like an illegal way. Never mind. You'll find out. Okay. <laughs> Patty, what are we doing Patty, today? We are going to tell ghost stories. I am in a ghost story mood lately, so it is a good time to do that. It's a good time to be alive. It's a good time to tell ghost stories. For ghost stories. It's just a good time to tell ghost stories, man. I told my daughter her first ghost story. What did you choose for Alana's first ghost story? Well, we've watched like travel show and stuff. She loves Uh Paranormal Caught on Camera. She calls it the ghost show. And she just always wants to see. And sometimes we like don't let her watch certain ones. But other ones, like there was a really cool lizard man one the other day. And she was like going crazy over it. But I told her about the white lady of... Wapsie. Ah. So we were walking through the woods and uh, it was starting to get dark. And I'm like, hey, do you want a ghost story? Do you think you're up for it? And she's like, yeah. So she was super stoked about it. And I told her. But then as I was getting through it, I'm like, oh, I'm talking about these people dying to become ghosts. And then she started asking questions about what happened to the husband and, you know, <laughs> yeah, they take they can beat the life out of the story, kids. You right? Know? Yeah, because because she doesn't know like like if you tell me a story, I know like kind of what goes into ghosts and stuff, and like she has no idea. So our walk had to be extended to get it all in, but she loved it. She wants to see the elbow where they fell off. So I gotta take her up there sometime, not at night. That would be um, an interesting trip. Yep. So. That was her first big time ghost story. But that's the buckhorn, not the Wapsononic. The devil's elbow is on the buckhorn. Isn't that what I said? I think uh, it's the well, Wapsononic. Pe- pe- people call her the white lady of Wapsie too. Yeah, but that's a different story. What? Yeah, they're totally different stories. I wrote them. I, I didn't know. wait. There are two stories. I thought it was yeah. the same white lady. No. Oh. There's the, there's the Buckhorn Mountain, and then there's the Wapsanonic Mountain, and they're totally different stories. Okay. And see what happens is the social media. I actually saw this. Um, there's a a site where like people can just. There's lots of them now, but there used to be just this one, um, really big site where you could write in your ghost stories. And I can actually go to this site and I can pull apart my ghost stories because people write in as though they're their stories, mm-hmm. and then they, they get them all asked backwards and wrong and twisted. And I can go, well, that's part of one of my stories, and yeah, that's the name of another guy <laughs> in one of my stories, and that's yeah. And they just merge them all together into some sort of amalgam. Well, a lot of so, it's probably you heard it. Also from somebody, you know, and, and you can only remember half of it or something. So, no, they are two different separate stories. Okay. You can the White Lady me. of the Buckhorn is the one about the young couple that was eloping. And the White Lady of the Wapsanonic is about a train wreck. I've never even heard the train wreck one. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to share it now, but. It's okay. I'm just saying it's about a lady and a train wreck. Okay. 
Well, it's it's a train wreck. I don't know these, huh? That's why they call me the ghost lady, man, because I know the ghost stories of PA. Hey, what's your favorite site of all the ones that like tell you where places are haunted and stuff in local areas? I have this one that's really I old. I don't have one. It's super old. It's called the Shadowlands. Yeah, that would be the one I was saying about where they get them all all confused. Well, okay. I won't go there anymore. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I didn't say anything. No, like I'm. If I were going to Shadowlands, I know the guy who owns Shadowlands. He's a nice man, and but and he can't verify every single story. There's a huge database of material there. There's so but, much, yeah. Yeah. So, but basically, what happens is people go in and they write, uh, you know, um, out on Wapsonic Mountain where I grew up, blah blah blah, and according to this ghost lady that writes books in our area, blah, and then they get my stuff all screwed up anyway. And and then I, there's other stories, and then they tell like half of three stories and merge them all together and turn them into something completely different, or. And I love this one because this is actually an infringement on copyright. There are some stories in my very first book um, in particular that were my family stories. And they kind of co-opt them and they happen to them suddenly. And I'm like, really? Well, did they say then like who it was? No, it's exactly the same story. Like there's a story about um, okay. out on on route 22 down near uh point pleasant okay so um point pleasant there's a story and it happened to my brothers and my and i tell the story about what happened to my brothers they kind of insert themselves into the story as as the person it happened to mm -hmm. but it's exactly what happened to my brothers in exactly the same terms and so they're basically just copying my story and putting themselves into it that's weird it's not for any financial gain is it no is it's just it's just for um like, I don't know. People Attention just, or, yeah, people yeah. just do strange stuff like that all the time. You'll see that any writer will tell you that though. People will just kind of co-opt your stuff and, and like, it's fine if you say, Hey, you know, I found this story about blah, blah, blah. And this was really cool. I'd like to share it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's totally fine. I mean, every writer has those moments, but, um, like there are people who will co-opt them as though they are theirs or ghost hunts that I've done. And they'll they'll and I've written about them and then they'll co-opt them and they'll say I was ghost hunting at such and such a site and they'll get the exact same EVPs and it'll be the same dates and everything. It's really odd hmm. how people just kind of like plagiarize your stuff. Sue. You All know what? It's, <laughs> it's not worth it to sue an individual, but I do know of writers who have sued um, like restaurants and hotels and stuff. Because it's it's fine to use stories, but it's not fine to steal somebody else's material and not give them credit. Mm -hmm. So, like, if they've done the research and unearthed material and wrote it in a book, you can't say, well, you know, we've always known. No, you didn't. If you if you weren't telling the story until afterward, then you're infringing on copyright. Mm -hmm. If they're nonfiction stories. That's no and I And I know no some people who have done it in one. Okay. So, but anyway, yeah, so. Well, in the comments, be truthful, everyone. Don't be ripping off people's stories. And I wasn't saying it for that reason, but like Shadowlands <laughs> does have a lot of that because people just, I don't know, they get them wrong somehow. They're just like, cool, this happened in my area. I'll let everybody know. Yeah, then all of a sudden it's like, well, it happened to me and my two brothers whenever I was a child. And I'm like, really? How interesting. Mm -hmm. You know? Speaking just, of interesting... Yes. 
We have three new patrons. We do. I heard. I was so excited. Yes. Hello, everybody. Hello. It is Colt Sisson. I love that name. Colt's an awesome name. It is. Uh, Danielle Schwanbeck. Hi, Danielle. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And uh, Ingra Stevens. And hello, Ingra. It is wonderful to have all three of you. Welcome. Welcome. And thank you so much for helping us grow with your contribution. We appreciate it. Um, So what is everybody getting tonight, Patty? Ghost stories. Did we say that already? (laughs) Yes. We had such a uh, diatribe about copyright infringement that (laughs) (laughs) I totally forgot. Okay. Okay. All right. So it's a writer thing. Like you work so hard on them and then somebody goes and rips them off. Well, have you ripped off these ones that you're going to talk about? I have not. I can give you exactly where they came from. I may not tell you in the story itself, like when we're talking, but if you would look at my notes, there's always credits. Okay. Okay. Hit me. What do you you have? Well, there's um, one that I call Crosley's Boy, and it is actually, um, I thought it was a really cool story. It was about um, this... uh, this fella in um, in England, in, in southern England. And this place story takes place in like the 1950s. So Mr. Crosley is the name of the gentleman who owns this house. And it's a little tiny house on a place called Long Lane outside of Did- Didcot in southern England. And he has like, there's like a train track that goes kind of down the road from him. There's a train track and just a nice little neighborhood and a nice little house. And one night, um, he's laying in bed. He's kind of awake. You know, those kind of not nights you toss and you turn and you just can't get yourself to go to sleep. Your head won't stop. Nope. Yes, you do. No, I just lay in like a rock. Oh, no matter okay. how anxious I am, it doesn't matter. I can sleep. Oh, Okay. And not wake well, up for hours. Anyway, he, continue. I have I have nights like that where I just kind of are restless. Well, anyhow, he's really restless. And all of a sudden, he takes note of this noise down below. And he said it sounded almost like a clanging of bells, like a big bell clanging. And he got up out of bed thinking, what the heck is that? It wasn't something he was familiar with, like a church bell or anything like that. And he kind of he goes to the window and he looks out and um, down on the street. Right in front of his house, he can see a boy about between 10 and 12 years old. And the boy is standing there looking up at him. And he's like, the noise is coming from right around the boy, almost as though the boy's making it somehow. So he grabs his robe and he starts down the stairs. He gets down the stairs. He opens the door expecting to see see the boy there and say, what are you doing? And it's way too late at night to be ringing bells. You're going to wake up all the neighbors. And instead there's nobody there at all. Just nobody. Um, so he's kind of looks around. He doesn't see anything. It's just an empty street. He closes the door, locks it again and goes back upstairs And just as he's laying down in bed, wondering about what had happened, he hears the clanging noise again. He jumps up, he runs to the window and quickly sees the boy is out there. So he runs down the stairs without, you know, taking a moment and flings open the door and the little boy is standing right there. And the boy's got this weird, um, almost like thousand yard stare, not like it's looking at him. He's looking at him, but he's looking beyond him somehow. And he says to the boy, um, what are you doing? And the boy turns. And when he does, he catches his, his body in the light from the hall. 
and he realizes the boy's transparent. He can see through him. Well, you can imagine how terrifying that would be in, you know, one o'clock in the morning and you're face to face with a translucent little boy. Mm -hmm. And the little boy turns around and starts running down toward where the train crossing is at. And um, the, the gentleman, Mr. Crosley, starts after him. He can hear a train in the distance. And he's like, if there's a train coming, then the gates should be down. But the gates aren't down. They're up. And the boy keeps running. And Mr. Crosley makes it about two-thirds of the way down there whenever he sees the train. The train isn't a modern train. It was an old steam engine from like the 1800s. And the boy just keeps running, dashes in front of this train as it's barreling through this thing and hits the boy and keeps on going. Mr. Crosley's horrified by what happened. He's confused because there aren't supposed to be steam engines running. And so very cautiously, with great trepidation, he walks forward to see if the little boy's there and if he was hit. And instead, he gets closer and he realizes that the train gates are are up, you know, and there's nothing there, nothing at all. So the next morning he goes and he talks to the engine, to the, you know, the gentleman who runs the train station. And um, the gentleman says, oh, you've seen the little boy. Um, we've had other people talk about him. We think he must have been struck by a train about 80 years ago. Um, you're not the first one to see him, but that was certainly one of the more, um, colorful accounts of experiencing the little boy. So was the train also not real? Yep. The train also was not real. So the whole scene plays out. Exactly as it must have that night. But that's now, so why, weird because why? if it was a trace memory, you'd think that the boy wouldn't. Well, you, you made it sound like, I guess, the boy didn't interact with him, right? He looked past him? He kind of looked past him, but um, he definitely wanted the man to see him. I mean, he obviously made enough noise to draw him out twice. And the first time he looked at the guy from the, the ground and the guy's looking at him out of his bedroom window, the second time he doesn't really stay at the window for more than a second. He just looks out, sees the form and takes off running downstairs to catch him before he disappears again. So do trace memories ever interact? I thought they don't. I don't. Otherwise, the little normally... boy is responsible for manifesting right. the train, which is like. Well, I mean, it's just all part of the same yeah. event. And that's happened. There's lots of stories of ghost trains. You know, they say that uh, Abraham Lincoln's train, the train that carried his body back to Springfield, um, manifests and takes the same route and people have seen it many people have seen it through the years with the black bunting the they describe it exactly as it was in the pictures um and the train ran you know um and would stop at all these different places for a few moments and and people would come and pay their respects by standing there along the tracks and what have you, and different dignitaries would get on and ride so far and go, you know, get off, and then other people would get on and ride with the body. And it took days to get him to um, Springfield, Illinois, where he was eventually buried. And that train supposedly runs on its own. And I've actually, I could give you like literally a hundred stories of trains that are ghost trains that run. 
Okay, so could it be the train is a trace memory and the boy is lucid and interacting with the memory? It's possible because he definitely wanted <laughs> someone to see it. But he could create the he could create the whole thing. I mean, it could just be that it's the tableau playing out and he wanted this man to understand. He wanted someone to see what happened to him. There are many levels to the story, Patty. There are. I liked it. It was a good story. <laughs> I know. I know you set out. Like to... you like to. You like to, actually don't say that. This was just a good story. You like to try to put everything in a little category, and unfortunately, in the paranormal, there's not always a category. This is just one of those little hybrid stories. It's that... more. I'm looking to make more questions. Oh, to well, be you've answered. Got good questions. I know. It's. Uh... It just that your simple little story didn't end up that way. <laughs> so, I, just, I mean, I like a nice, clean little ghost story like that. It's a beautiful little story in its own weird way. Yeah. I mean, did the guy see him get hit or did it just like, did he run he, through it or? He ran into the train tracks and then the train went through. Okay. He couldn't see, you right. know, it's dark. It's one o'clock in the morning, approximately. And so he was scared and he thought he kind of forced himself to walk forward to see if the little boy was hit. And there was no little boy. The train gates were down when they should have been up if the train went through. Mm -hmm. And um, there was just nothing there. So it puzzled him enough that the next day he went over and talked to the gentleman who ran the, the train station and just asked, you know, some very pointed questions about has anybody ever seen anything odd here any children stuff like that and then the guy kind of keyed on and he's like did you see something and then when he said yes he told him what he saw and he's like yeah you're not the first <laughs> i just hope the boy doesn't have to relive being hit over and over again forever or something i don't know and that, that i don't know if he does have to or if he chooses to but he was definitely um he wanted someone to see it. I don't know why. But he, he could have just gone through that tableau without anybody knowing over and over again. But he definitely wanted attention. Some ghosts just want to be remembered, don't they? Sometimes. Sometimes they have something that they want to share and stuff too. Mm -hmm. But I just thought that was a really good story. And, um, you know, I try to find interesting, unusual stories. So What's your next is, one? Ah, well, this is kind of, for me, I like pirate stories, okay? And um, so this is kind of a pirate story. I love pirates. I do too. Patty, pirates versus ninjas. Who wins? Pirates. I, I don't know. I think I disagree. I like pirates better. I disagree because they'll never see the ninjas coming. Of course they will. They're, Stealthy. they're fierce fighters. Blackbeard was one hell of a fighter. I mean, he was basically a very sick man in a lot of ways mentally, <laughs> but his but some of his tactics were phenomenal if you read about them. Yeah, I went to this thing. Where was it? I think it was an aquarium in Myrtle Beach, maybe. And they had a pirate thing where they actually talk about what the pirates really are and really were. And it's so different from like Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, not, yeah. not exactly in the way they dressed and the hijinks that they would do, but just their tactics and their... You know, it's it's almost like you you kind of get the sense that they're the bad guys, right? And sometimes you hear about these people not being bad guys. They were kind of gentlemanly, like a Robin Hood type. You it, know? Well, it depended. It really did yeah. depend. Um, like you know, um, 
our story tonight's going to be about Captain Kidd, but Blackbeard was a privateer hired, you know, during this time period, the British and the French were basically fighting constantly. And so they would hire private ships and captains to try to capture the bounty and loot of other nations' ships mm. and just basically cause trouble. And so that's kind of how Blackbeard started. And then, you know, when it was all over with, they just kind of went, oh, sorry, boys, just go home. Well, he had a taste for for looting, and that's how he was making a living, you know, because he could sell whatever he stole. So he just continued on. In fact, he stole um, Queen Anne's Revenge, which was his ship. Mm-hmm. He stole the ship. He liked it, and when he took the the bounty, the stuff off that particular ship, he, he decided to liberate the entire ship because he liked it. And he turned it into the head of his fleet. And he had an entire fleet of ships. People don't realize that. Yeah, the it was Queen very Anne, organized. A lot yes, of them it, were ex-military, right? Like, Yeah, and it was a business. It was definitely a business. It was, um, you know, they made livings at it. They hired their people. They had doctors on board. They had, I mean, they were covered for just about every contingency. Well, if you're out on the water and you ever see a ghost ship, a ghost pirate ship, and it has red sails. Go the other way, everyone. Get away from that thing. <laughs> well, Blackbeard, there's a lot of Blackbeard ghost stories. Because those are the kill, the kill ones, right? Like they basically, they, well, they will kill do, everyone on board and they, they would advertise do that, it. Or they would put the skull and crossbones up to warn that they were pirates and that they would take lives. Right. That's really where the skull and crossbones came from. Yeah. I thought there was like levels, like skull and crossbones is like, we could take your life. But the red sails, like, we will take your life. So, but yeah, as long as you saw the skull and crossbones, you were definitely in jeopardy. Yeah. And they would, they would fly it before they would take a ship because it also caused a psychological impact. You know, if, if the captain and the crew saw it, they would hope that if they gave in and just like, take whatever you want, mm-hmm. just take what you want, man, um, that they might survive and they're, they're, you know, if they had passengers that they might survive. Of course, there are legions of stories, um, about people who, didn't survive so well. I don't know. You know who, um, of course, I know you know who Aaron Burr is, but his daughter Theodosia was kidnapped by pirates, and there's a ghost story attached to her. Hmm. Which we will tell another time. Well, I can tell it now if you want. It's up to you. Let's save it for a tale, because that sounds like a really interesting one-off. It's a really good story. I'm I'm a big fan of Theodosia Burr, so. Um, so let's go back to Captain Kit. So Captain Kidd actually lived um, in New York City on a street called Pearl Street for about four years. And, you know, it was a great big harbor. It was a great place for him to come and go from as he was he was um, having his misadventures, you know, as, you know, a pirate. And he was a good, easy harbor to get into to bring the stuff into shore to, to get rid of it and what have you. So he lived there for about four years during that period of time. There was a story that began to circulate that he had buried um, a chest of jewelry and gold, basically stuff he had stolen off of ships that he had hung on to for a rainy day, shall we say. Because, you know, he made a great deal of money doing this. So he could afford to hold some stuff back for a rainy day. Mm -hmm. And as the captain, he had first pick of all the bounty and he would keep the best stuff and then they would basically parcel out so much and these other guys would sell it out and get their pay for having shipped with him. Well, um, basically, 
the area he is supposed to have buried it in is where we now have the Statue of Liberty. Really? It's in basically the same spot. Okay. So in, um, so the stories have passed on for quite a long time because, you know, Captain Kidd was executed in England in 1701. And so, you know, we're talking a couple hundred years here. Um, but the story has always persisted. There have been people who've claimed that they have seen him, that they've attempted to, people have gone to try to find this treasure and what have you. Um, like I said, it's on that little island where, you know, of land where the Statue of Liberty is at. So in 1982, there were two soldiers who were stationed at Fort Wood, and they got the great idea, having heard the ghost story, to let they should probably go out and try to find the gold. So one night when they're um, supposed to be sleeping, they sneak off, you know, and they're going to dig for the gold. They've done some research. They think they got this puppy licked. And in the middle of the night, their comrades hear them screaming, um, at least one of them. There's a soldier by the name of Gibbs who was found unconscious. And um, his partner's name was Carpenter. And he was standing there. He's the one yelling. And they've got a hole dug in the, in the ground, you know, right there at this one spot. And when Carpenter is questioned, um, he says, I don't know what happened. I don't know. I just heard him screaming. He screamed, oh my God, I saw this black mass and then it disappeared and then he passed out and I, I needed help. I was scared. So that's why he was yelling. Gibbs, however, tells a different story. He says that as Carpenter's shoveling, they hit something that feels like a, a box, like a wooden piece of wood, heavy, thick piece of wood. And at that moment, um, a creature appeared with black skin, horns, wings, and a barbed tail. And that it um, was reddish black in color. And that this thing rose up and came at Gibbs, who then passed out. Gibbs believes it's the spirit of Captain Kidd protecting the harbor and the area where he buried his gold so long ago. So it's just a really creepy and odd tale. And there is proof that Kid did live in that area, that stories started circulating within a year or two of him leaving. And, you know, beyond that, I don't know how you would prove it, but at least he did actually in his lifetime live in that area. Hmm. Why wings and the tail and everything? I don't know. Except maybe to be frightening or maybe because he was... So, you know, he killed a lot of people over his lifetime. So it could be that he's kind of demonic in nature now, but it's just a really creepy story. And, uh, you know, they honestly believed that it was Captain Kidd's ghost protecting his long lost um, bounty that he had been hiding all these years. Hmm. They should have looked you know, for the X if well, they were smart. I don't think they paint X's. <laughs> That's not a thing. In reality. Oh, oh okay. Sorry. You're right. I didn't know things. I will tell you in Pennsylvania German, like um, in the like what people call Pennsylvania Dutch, but in Pennsylvania German folklore, mm -hmm. um, you will find a lot of stories about ghosts and dogs, demon dogs, ghost dogs that disappear at a spot. And if you dig there, um, supposedly there's there's treasure, there's gold or something. Um, and there's that's a whole tradition in Pennsylvania German folklore. 
That's weird. Why would they take you to it? Is it like it's bad like they to can't, have it in your possession or something? They, or? Well, basically, because they can't continue forward until they've gotten rid of what they've stolen. Okay. Is the attitude of the stories. this so? But it's interesting because there are stories of uh, demon dogs and particularly in, like I said, Germanic literature. You'll see them in other cultures too, but not consistently like you do with the d- d- the Germanic stories. But um, I just thought it was really interesting, and I thought it was a kind of cool story. And it had a pirate. Yep, arg. Did arg. you ever experience uh, a human spirit that was transformed in such a way in your own experience? Because I would assume that they would always look like a human. No, they don't have to always look like a human. They don't have to look like they looked when they died either. Right, right. But have you ever seen any that had features like that? Well, or I like mean, like a they there came back stories. as a, a dog, or <laughs> you yeah, know, something. there are stories of weird things like that. Not okay. often; they're not common, but there are a few. Okay. There are a few stories of stuff like that. Yeah. So I was like, why is there a gargoyle protecting the treasure? Because <laughs> that's what it sounded like. Well, but anyway, that's the. Uh, that's the kind of gist of it. But it's an interesting story. And since there is some validity to at least the historical component of it, you have to give at least a nod to it being a decent story. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it had a pirate. Again, I like pirates. <laughs> we should have just done a pirate episode. Don't tempt me. It sounds me. like you have so many of them. Actually, when I did The Haunted North Carolina, I came across a lot of captain of stories like um, black, black beards, ghost type stories. I have a question. What? Favorite harbor. Go. I don't have a favorite harbor. Really? Maybe the one in Salem. I thought that was beautiful. That is a good one. I like that. Uh, Sackett's Harbor for me. Have you ever been there? Sackett's Harbor, New York? I have not. It is awesome. I also like Bar Harbor, but I don't think that's exactly the type of harbor we're talking about in Maine. No. (laughs) No, I don't think so either. So anyway, what's your next one? The Dead Children's Playground. Oh, stop. Never mind. Skip that one. It's a good story. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. No, you can't tell me that I can tell ghost stories and then stop me when I find a good ghost story. I'm sorry, man. Listen, Patty, you're like a jukebox of stories. So I can hit a skip button every now and then, can I? No. Maybe a pause button when I want to talk? No? No. All right, continue. Okay. So in um, Huntsville, Alabama, there is a cemetery called Maple Hill. It's the oldest cemetery in all of Alabama. Officially, it was incorporated in 1822, but stories of there being, of it being a, bo- a boneyard, a place of burial, go far back, probably another 40, 50, 60 years. So unofficially, in late 1700s, it was a cemetery. And in the cemetery, there is a section that has a playground on it. You know, swing sets, the whole nine yards, picnic tables in the middle of the cemetery. And it's in an area where there's a lot of children buried. And the people of Huntsville have always called it the Dead Children's Playground. Now, it's not the official name. The official name for it is the Maple Hill Cemetery. Okay. Wait, I know this one. This is the place that has all the swings that go by itself. Right. It is one of the stories. They have swings that go by themselves. They hear children laughing. They'll hear women calling for children. There's nobody there. Yeah. I knew that sounded Um, familiar because that's the one from Paranormal Caught on Camera that I was telling you about. Oh, okay. So Um, check that out if you want to see it. There was also a serial killer who 
dumped, used the cemetery as a dumping ground for his bodies and he murdered children. Hmm. And um, they never caught him. And he dumped several children's bodies there. When was this? Um, trying to remember. So I was trying to remember. I think it was in the 50s. But please don't hold me to that one because for some reason the date escapes me. Okay. But it wasn't anything like, it wasn't like 150 years ago or anything. It was more modern. And, um, you know, now I thought it was a really interesting story because there are so many stories about it being haunted. And it's not about the whole cemetery. It's just about the dead children's playground area. Um, you know, the swing sets going by themselves, hearing children laughing and giggling and talking, women calling to phantom children that are dead. You don't see either of them. Um, shadows flitting through the place, stuff like that. And then the stories of the children who were murdered and taken there. And you'll hear crying, stuff like that in the areas where the bodies were found. Um, but in 2000, around 2007, the city of Huntsville decided they were going to do away with it, that it was macabre and arcane. And that they could better use that area for more cemetery plots. And whenever it was announced in the paper that they were doing away with the dead children's playground, people in the town of Huntsville got pretty upset. This had always been there in most people's memory, you know? Mm -hmm. So they threw a fit and eventually the city decided that instead of tearing it out, they would refurbish it. So they rebuilt it. Um, put new swing sets, made everything more modern and, and nice. And it's still there to this day. Mm -hmm. You can go there and have a picnic and, you know, until sunset. And uh, people go there all the time. Well, if you want to have a paranormal experience, it's probably one of the better places to do it. It certainly has a reputation. It really does. And the stories are, there's legions of stories. And I mean, like I went through and I read story after story after story after story from people who claimed that they had seen or heard something in the cemetery. You know, like we were there after dark because everybody said we were like 15 or 18 or whatever, you know, and then blah, blah, blah happened. Or, you know, my boyfriend and I went over there because we figured there'd be nobody around. And the next thing we knew, we heard children giggling and the swing sets were going, stuff like that. Yeah. No, that video was awesome. The one that I saw. Yeah. So. so. So anyhow, that's the story. I thought that it was a really interesting story. And it's definitely um, a unique cemetery feature. I mean, I have stories of, of statues that come to life and in cemeteries and, you know, things of that nature. But this one was particularly interesting because who puts a, a playground in the middle of a cemetery? Who did? Apparently. Who, who was the first person but, to do it? Was it for the kids on purpose? Not, not for the dead kids, no. Okay, I didn't know if that was like, no. oh. No, was whoever the town people, town's fathers were at that point in time because it's actually apparently, you know, city property. Huh. Maple Hill is, is city property from what, it, from what the articles all say because they were the ones the town was going to take it apart because they didn't want to keep, you know, footing the bill for everything there. And that's whenever the people kind of got up in arms and said, no, this is a tradition. You leave it alone. It's mm -hmm. our cemetery. Well, and that's how it goes, you know? If you're near Alabama, check that one out. Yeah, I thought that was a really good story. I really did. So the next story I had found that I really liked was called Villa de Vici. And it's in Italy. And I just thought it was a really cool story. So the Villa de Vici is um, this if you can imagine this great big old white mansion with um, all these um, little 
cupolas and stuff, and it's very creepy looking. Okay, mm-hmm. and it's actually trans—it's actually called the House of Witches locally, and it dates back to about 1857 is when it was built. It was built by Count Felix de Vici um, for his family on land that was supposedly um, used by the by witches locally, and that they took umbrance with this land being co-opted by the da Vinci family okay mm-hmm. so they got really upset about it and um they were told that the the da Vinci's were told that um if they built the house there that there would be nothing but sorrow and trouble to follow them and felix didn't buy the story and unfortunately they were they weren't lying um the first person to die on the property was actually the architect um, he was, you know, working on the property and what have you and fell and was and died. And then, um, you know, the house was built in 1857. So this would have only been like five years after the house was built. The count went away for some business and he came back a few days later to find his wife was murdered and his daughter was missing. And they never found his daughter or her body. And approximately a year after this entire thing happened. He had been driven mad with grief and he committed suicide in the house. So, um, you know, a little time goes by, the whole place is probated and his brother ends up inheriting it all. And he decides to move his family there and they live there, um, with various series of tragedies, you know, deaths and accidents and what have you until almost world war two. And um, then during World War II, a lot of Italy was destroyed, you know, during the uh, fighting. But and all the mansions and all the homes around it were destroyed. But the villa still stands. And in the 1960s, there was an avalanche that took out the houses around it again, and it was still left. So it's still there. It's empty. It's abandoned. It's it's kind of creepy, but very pretty. You can see the bones of what it would have once been. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it has a very um, difficult reputation because whatever whatever happened there, it stands defiantly against everything. Avalanches, wars, bombs, whatever. But nobody's ever very happy when they're there. Hmm. I mean, has anybody tried to take a wrecking ball to it and just get rid of it? I don't know who owns it now, but it's oh. still standing to this day. You know, somebody must have property rights to that area. So the architect didn't finish. No, he did not. They ended up having to hire another one because he fell off the construction and died of a broken neck. And the other one was fine, though. Well, he was only there for a little while. The house was half completed. And he might have been very smart to just go walk the property once and go away, yeah. <laughs> go away and do his job from elsewhere. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, the house, the family definitely had a lot of tragedy. You know, murders and disappearances and suicides and what have you on the property. So some places just seem cursed and that was one of them. Hmm. That's not good. 
I know well, you, I see you brought the uplifting stories today. I brought creepy <laughs> stories because I like so, creepy stories. So and I've been doing like not all ghost stories are uplifting. I hate to break it to you, but I, I was hoping aren't. you were gonna uh, do pull one of your it's a twist moments and be like, and the guy said that you get nothing but sorrow and misery, and then they didn't and lived happily ever after. There I was like, no where's that thing. at? <laughs> it's in a fictional story somewhere okay well but i've been trying to go a little further afield with some of my research and reading so i've done um i've done some you know checking of some really cool places but i have i've seen pictures of this house and this house is like i said the bones of it are beautiful but you can just there's a vibe to it when you look at it what's it called villa de de vici i'm looking it up here well that can't be it it's an old white house with bushes and shrubs growing all over it. It's not the retirement residence in Woodbridge, Ontario. I take it. No, it is not. <laughs> oh, this would be sitting in I Italy. I hope they didn't name it after the story. All righty. Well, anyway, what else you got? <laughs> it's like a challenge tonight. What I, else you well, got? I what had, else you got? I had a weird thing. What? Happened to me. Okay. I, I guess I can talk about it. Um, right. So we were sleeping and the fire alarm was beeping, mm -hmm. but like in a way that I, I didn't know if it was like, okay, change the batteries or I was like, does this mean like CO2? You know, I got really freaked out and I'm walking by like up towards it and it stops and I'm like, okay, is, is that over with or what? And then it started back up again and i heard my name in the same way that i've heard it before right and uh it, it's it just felt like hey go turn that go figure that thing out go turn it off you know that's that's kind of the vibe i got so then i went and i took the batteries out and i replaced the batteries and then it was fine but i was like oh were we trying to get helped out because it seemed like there was a fire or something you know yeah. So I don't know. I thought that was very interesting. That is interesting. So um, you want to hear the next story? I guess. I'll tell you they're not they're not they're not happy landings, these stories. These are all creepy and weird because okay. I was in a creepy and weird mood today. All right, go ahead. All uh, right. Now so, thanks for the foreshadowing. Now we know. Yeah, but I saved the really creepy one for the last. But this is the next to the last. Okay. So everybody everywhere have their white their white lady stories. You had you know alluded to that with the Wapsie story and the Buckhorn story. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like every culture has its own versions of the white lady stories. But in Brazil, in um, Sao Paulo, there is a really creepy, creepy version of the white lady story that is beyond. I mean, I don't think even um, the Lalornas are much creepier than this. Mm -hmm. So here's the story. The story runs that there was a plantation owner in um, the area outside of Sao Paulo who um, was a particularly cruel man, but he was pretty good at hiding it. So he wooed one of the local young women and married her. She was a very beautiful, very kind-hearted girl. And he kind of gaslighted her, you know, to sort of tricked her. And uh, when she ended up going to live on the plantation with him, of course, they had slaves um, in that time period, which would have been like the um, early 1800s. And uh, 
very quickly she began to see how cruel he really was beating the slaves and you know abusing people and what have you and he wasn't much kinder to her to be honest so she ended up striking a friendship um with uh one of the slaves now they were not clear in any of the stories if it was a male slave a female slave whatever but she definitely struck up a relationship with one of the slaves and um when he found out he was furious because she dared to denigrate his name by talking to and being friends with this slave. So he, um, most of the stories indicated it was a male. So I'm not sure if they had an affair or not, but however it worked out, when he found out he was livid and he had the man killed, the slave killed and cooked. And he told her he did. And he had her chained to a chair in the dining room. And he told her she would have to eat part of this man. And so she refused. She absolutely refused. And she ended up being chained in the room until she died of starvation. At which point he put her in her wedding dress and had her shipped back to her family. And that's how they, that's when they, how they found out what was going on is that the corpse was literally dumped on their doorstep. And, um, it is said that in Sao Paulo, every few months, a young man will disappear. Um, and prior to that, there are sightings of this young bride, this young woman in her white dress going up and down the streets of Sao Paulo. And after a young man disappears for a while, she seems to be at peace and doesn't show herself. And when she begins to show herself again, another young man will disappear. Zoinks. <laughs> well, that, that one had a good twist. I was like, no, don't eat. Don't, don't do that. Um, well, she ended up dying, but I mean, she did stick to her. <laughs> I, I, it didn't go the way I thought you were talking about. And then, and then you really changed it up at the end there. Like then she started taking people. She became a vengeful spirit. Yes. Well, if you're anywhere near Brazil. Sao Paulo. Just Sao Paulo. Okay. If you're anywhere near there, look out. And you're a young guy. Just make sure you don't see phantoms running around at night in a wedding dress. That would be bad juju. Yeah. Run the other Run. way. Get on a plane. Head for someplace else. So they but just disappear and ne are never found. They're not, never found. So, so yeah. no one was ever like, they turned up and... They didn't say that nobody ever turned up, but they yeah. said that most, they just said most of the time they just disappear oh. or just gone. And then after that, after there's a person who disappears, then she seems to rest for four or five months and then Beck comes back again. Hmm. But I mean, Sao Paulo is a fairly large place. It would be um, not unreasonable that if people disappeared you know, that the stories would, would come back all the time. And it, I, I can easily imagine two or three people a year disappearing. Mm -hmm. And then just being like, it's her again. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, or maybe it is her. I don't know. But it is kind of an unusual twist to the white lady stories. Mm -hmm. They're usually victims. Right. And this one, she definitely ended up not being a victim. Yuck. All right. What else you got? <laughs> No more questions. Moving on. <laughs> Boy, I thought they were good stories. I guess. Here. It is. I mean, it's very interesting to know that that people are taken and 
that might be why and those those stories are the ones that are creepy because it's like it's it hasn't been resolved and it never will maybe probably not so my last story and by my estimation the creepiest of all the stories um for tonight is actually one that also takes place um in italy in um 1676 there was a um convent in this particular area in in um france or excuse me in italy and um there was just like a little it was a little rural area there weren't a lot of it wasn't a huge population and the the convent was very well respected and known in the area and uh one morning um, when the mother superior gathered everybody, they noticed that one of the sisters, a sister by the name of Sister Maria, was missing. So she was a good and pious woman, and she had never um, caused any trouble. So whenever she didn't come down for breakfast and to to do her prayers and what have you, her, the um, mother superior inquired about her. One of the ladies said, "I heard her up in her room last night. She was." Um, must have been very restless. She was crying and walking around or pacing and, and it finally fell silent almost at dawn. Perhaps she's just resting. And she said, well, maybe she's sick. You know, we should go up and check. So a couple of the ladies go up and they find her laying on the floor with ink on her face and her hands and her, um, a spilled bottle of ink laying on the little, uh, wooden, plain wooden table beside her, um, and when they roll her over, she's her eyes are just panicked and she's shaking and almost as though she's in severe shock. She's got clutched in her hand this piece of paper. And all she can say is, the devil was here. The devil was here. And they pry the paper out of her hand. And she's beyond out of it. I mean, she's literally, you know, almost catatonic at this point. And she ends up having a nervous breakdown and going mad. Um, but what she told them that morning was that the devil was there and he wrote this note and he made her take it. And that he had tortured her all night, which was whenever the other ladies had heard what they thought was her pacing. It was actually, and her crying, it was actually her in this battle with Satan. And um, the paper had all these weird cryptic symbols and and things on it that nobody could recognize. It certainly wasn't Italian. It wasn't French. It wasn't um, any language that any of them had ever seen before. And some of it didn't look like language at all. And so the mother superior passed the paper and the story to the priest who was in charge of the of them and it passed on through the system and eventually it was um this particular paper was kept it still it still exists to this day it is you know framed under glass so as to keep it from aging any worse but it does exist so um several years ago on the black web um a gentleman who was a computer geek found a program where you could program um, different languages into a computer system and attempt to like translate different things. So he got the bright idea because he knew this story. He had seen this story before. 
that he could get a hold of this paper, he could feed it into this computer system, and he programmed it with all these different languages from ancient Sumerian to, you know, Greek and Aramaic and all these different things. And every language he could come up with, he programmed it in. And he got a partial translation, only partial. And this is 300 years later. And the translation, I don't know how else to explain it. It almost sounds like a childish tirade against God. And if you think about who Satan is and why he's mad at God, because God wouldn't let him take over and punished him for his vanity, you know? And so it, it makes sense in that context. And the, the partial translation that came through was something along the lines of God and Jesus are useless constructs that human beings have made. They are not real. And then he talks about the river sticks and how you need to, f to flow down the river to me and that, um, you know, that he was the, um, the real power behind everything, very petulant and childish kind of stuff. Um, but it's interesting that part of it could be translated. Like if they were just insane, stupid scribblings of a woman who was going mad, you wouldn't think they could be translated. Now, not all of it did translate out. There's stuff that's missing. And that could be as simple as um, it could be a dead language he didn't have access to. Or something along those lines. But of creepy stories, I personally have to tell you that one kind of gives me a shudder. Particularly when I realize that those scribblings and scratchings that Sister Maria said were the devil from long ago are now being deciphered, translated. And they do pertain to God and to his anger at the fact that he was punished by God. Well, that's a story. That's one heck of a story, if you ask me. So is that in Italy? Yes. And it's very interesting. Monasteries tend to have a lot of activity, don't they? It depends on the on the place. But this one, like it had nothing to do with the um, the nuns at the convent. Like they had a very good reputation. They were very nice ladies. They were very quiet. You know, they, they basically toiled in silence and did their work and they raised their food and what have you and tried to help amongst the people in the village. There was nothing about them. It was just like he picked a place, showed up. And I don't know why he set his sights on his sister Maria, but went after this one nun and for, and she was, like I said, she had a nervous breakdown and went insane according to everything I could find out. And um, she just kind of falls off the map after this. Hmm. And, you know, he announces himself through the devastation he has to Maria and her having to give this to the church. No comment. No follow-up questions. None at all? Nope. Wow. Why is that? I just don't like those stories. Well, I mean, it's a story and it needs to be told. It's a, it's an interesting story. And from my perspective as, you know, a person who studies the paranormal, the fact that this stuff is being translated now says a lot about there being some validity to what she might have said. Yeah. And? 
that I just thought it was a really good story. I thought it was a phenomenal story. This is a story 300 years in the making. And it's, you know, a cryptographer's nightmare to try to figure something like this out. And yet, here we are beginning to break this code. There's all stuff that kinds of stuff that's coming to light due to technology and things. And this would have taken forever had it not been that there was a program you could program this stuff into. But I just thought it was a fascinating and um, sort of terrifying story in its own way. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely an interesting story. It has a historical context. It is a true story. I just found it fascinating. What else you got? That's it for tonight. (laughs) That's my method of keeping things moving. What else you got? No. Now, see, I I know, but I know you don't care for those stories, but those are fascinating stories. They are, the dark stories are there. They, they're a huge part of the paranormal landscape. And, you know, there are nights whenever those are the ones you run into. And you just accept that it is part of the paranormal world. Mm -hmm. It's not all, you know, light and what have you. And in its own weird way, it's a valid, it's a validation of the truth of that struggle from good and evil. Yeah. That's the part I took away as probably the most interesting part. It's like, that's still going on. It's always going to go on. Yeah. Yeah. When things validate the Bible, I mean, that's pretty interesting because then you know, it's not, it's not just some made up book. Like I told you about the Arabian Nights. I don't know if that was on here or not. And I was like, wow, that was all made up. It's so intricate and everything like that. You know what I mean? And, and when you see those little bits of truth that validate things, like make the Bible seem more real, you know, even though it's all belief, of course, but you also go, oh, okay. Yeah, but anytime the Bible, and I will say this with great honesty and certainty, anytime the Bible and science differ, eventually the Bible wins out. There's this wonderful um, book called um, The Evidence Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And Josh McDowell was um, studying at Berkeley University, late 60s, early 70s. And his wife, he was an atheist, his wife was an atheist, and she somehow got um, attached to some church group and went started going to this church group and changed and and became a Christian. And he told, he tells the story beautifully about how he, um, she didn't bug him. Like he'd be sitting there doing homework at night and she'd be sitting in a chair in the other side of the room reading quietly, but it was the Bible she was reading and it pissed him off, Hmm. like really made him mad, unreasonably mad. And he'd slam down his book and he would scream, will you stop it? And she's like, what? I'm not doing anything. He's like, that and he would just like start on these tirades and these you know diatribes about how it was fiction and it was a bunch of fo- of hooey and you know and what have you and one night she had taken a huge verbal brow beating from him over this and she finally had enough and she got up and she slammed the bible down in front of him and she said if it's not true prove it and he picked up the book and he thought six months i'll have this thing licked if that and two and a half years later, he had converted to being a Christian. <laughs> he wrote the book, The Evidence Demands a Verdict. Mm-hmm. And it started him on a lifetime of ministry. He ended up starting Campus Crusades for Christ. And it's a it was a huge ministry movement in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It oh, still okay. exists. 
but it was um it was all about bringing um christian preaching to the campuses okay and um you know he he was a minister for the rest of his life because of that challenge and he would come up with like this is what the historians say this is what the bible says this is what was eventually found that's a really fascinating Wait, did they do thing. the whole thing or I mean, he picked out like, I don't know that he picked every single item in the Bible. That would have been like 10 times worth of 10 lifetimes of work. Right. But he picked out things like Sodom and Gomorrah and, um, you know, the I remember the wall of uh, Jericho was one that, you know, they made fun of the story about how they marched around 10 times blowing the horn and then the wall came crashing down and saw, you know, came down. Oh, he's OK. He's the guy that you talk about with. that. Yeah. OK. Um, so like he picked specific events out of the Bible mm-hmm. that historians and people, skeptics would always say were not true. And then he would go back into the documents because, um, you know, there's a lot of documents from that time period that still exist, um, secular writings from different people that actually kind of proved out some of this. And then science and archaeology would discover stuff and they would find it. It did happen. They actually found the walls of Jericho and they did go tumbling down the way the, the Bible description is they have found some, some, I think it's, I think it's Sodom. No, it was Gomorrah. I think they found, and it is very much the way it was described in the Bible, you know, the mm-hmm. pillars and what have you. So, um, it was interesting. It's a very interesting read. I, I enjoyed the book a lot. And what was um, it called again? The evidence demands a verdict. Okay. But it, I just found it an interesting book. So, you know, that, that struggle's eternal. Mm-hmm. It just is. Right. Yep. Th- those are some creepy stories. Thank you. You you hit the nail on the head on that one. <laughs> so if the guys like, if you guys like them, then let us know because Kenny gets a little wigged out by my creepy stories. Yeah, some of some of the creepiest. <clears throat> so does. if you want more uplifting stories, let us know that too. Yeah, but you have to face all the parts of the paranormal. There's all kinds of things in the paranormal and you got to face them all. Agreed. So, um, yeah. yeah, let us know what you guys think. Let us know what you want more of because we haven't asked in a while. Shadow Men was our big thing. We did it. So, yeah, so we did it. So let us know what you want to hear more about. I want to do Black Eyed Children and Men in Black or some more Shadow Man stuff I want to talk about. I got all kinds of creepy crap. All right. I always have lots of creepy crap. Because the the world of the paranormal is peopled. Among, I mean, there are some very beautiful and uplifting stories, but there's also some very dark and confusing and weird stuff. And it gets weirder than you'll you have any clue, let me tell you. Or that I want to know about, probably. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. So if you like these episodes and you want more, how can they get it, Patty? They can reach out to us and let us know. And they can become patrons. There we go. And <laughs> I knew where you were headed. <laughs> I'm they like, wait a minute. <laughs> And hear all the extra uh, things that they are missing now, including some really good stories we've just done. Including part two of the haunted film stuff. Yep. That that was one uh, that we just did. And we have, what, 16 others? Yeah, I believe so. So you're missing out, guys. If, if you want more of some of the content that you love, 
check it out see what you got what we got all right patty i think you've sufficiently creeped everybody out enough for one evening oh you're very welcome <laughs> so, moving on what else do you have <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to bed soon it's getting late for me i i get up at like 4 30 in the morning you're like i have teeth to brush and a nightgown to put on that's my that's next thing right. <laughs> and a cat and cats to I lay with cats. and a british cooking show to watch that's right i watched my british cooking show like i can do it's weird though i can read a, i was i was reading malachi martin's book on um it was called hostage of the devil um here a few months ago and a friend of mine came over and she's like you're not going to read that before you go to sleep and i'm like sure i am she's like patty how could you possibly and then sleep well and i'm like i don't know that's what i'm reading See, here's the thing, Patty. I'm thinking about switching my sleep schedule completely to being getting up at 6 a.m. and trying to do some work before uh -huh. like the kids get up as opposed to waiting till the kids go to bed to do all yeah. my work. Because, yeah, I watch all these things, <laughs> all these things that go bump in the night stories right before I go to bed. And I'm like, I wake up panicky and I'm like, no, I, not again. See, I wrote most of my um, of my books at night. Other than the UFO book. Right. Um, I mostly write at night. I mean, I, and now I write whenever I can catch the moment to do it. But overall, yeah. And right now I'm working, as you know, on a book of, with um, about exorcisms mm -hmm. with um, a priest who is an exorcist. And, um, you know, I work on that when I have the opportunity, day or night. I just have enough faith that it's all going to be fine. Agreed. It is. All right. Well, there you go, pair of peeps. But the morning is nice and sunrises are pretty, Kenny. You'll like them. Well, I don't know what that is, but... <laughs> just say, you'll like them. Well, no, like everybody says online, like everybody, all these productive people, they're like, oh, we, we get up at 5 or 6 a.m. And I'm like, huh, maybe I should try that instead of staying up till 3 and then sleeping until like 11, you know? Yeah. So they, maybe I'll try that. 4.30 to quarter of five. And then I get everything down I have to do here. Feed the cat. Feed the cat more chicken. Mm -hmm. Feed the cat more chicken. Okay. That's my morning schedule. And I'm allowed to get a shower at some point as long as I keep feeding the cat chicken. <laughs> As long as you, may I get a shower, master, please? Yes, the cat owns me. Hey, she, he knows it too, man. Everybody knows that cat owns us. He's. I tell everybody he's the prince of pussy cats, and his mommy says so, and that's all that matters. And he's happy with that. He's and good. and the cat's like, yes, you may. I am pleased now. Yes, go. I'm eating my chicken. I'm eating my chicken. See, he doesn't eat cat food. I don't feed him cat food. Yes, we know, Patty. It's good for you. To make so you've said on this podcast many times. No, so, I, is anyway. that is that the bickering that they the people were talking about that they like? I don't know. It must be. They <laughs> said somebody said I put a post and said I love the way you two bicker, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> well, consider it done, parapeep. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, All yeah, right. I I just it, it's just worked out that way. I used to be a three o'clock in the morning person. I did, but then life kind of took over, and my kids had to go to school, and that's the thing. It's uh, the kindergarten's about to start and all that stuff. And I think I just need to get switched over and yeah. make an attempt and see what morning is like. 
sunrises are beautiful and there's little bunnies and birdies and all kinds of things out real early in the day and they like to frolic in the little wet grass and I just love it. I, I drive to work a, a really rural route just to just, you know, slowly meander my way towards civilization. I have been more peaceful lately since you told me to go out in nature all the time. It does help, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So if you're in any sort of anxiety or turmoil, Parapeep, check Turn out, off your phone try and that go out. out to the woods. Or even the backyard. It has very helpful. Yes. I turn off my phone and drive everybody crazy for a day. I just go out and sit in the woods. That's it. Just walk around, stick my feet in the creek. I'm good. Uh, that's a creek for all of you who don't know what a creek is. Creek is a creek. This is what <laughs> Pennsylvanians call water. Cricks. A creek is a creek. Darn right. it. Leave me alone. <laughs> okay. We'll I'm see you. I'm from Altoona, too. So, well, you're from Altoona. I'm from Williamsburg. Yep. It's all the same. We talk. We talk funny. And we read stuff up. Yep, we read stuff up. That means clean, everyone. So now you got Central Pennsylvania ease. Right. <laughs> All right. We'll let you go finally. Goodbye, everyone. Good night.